I hope that you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning. If you don't own a Bible, please see me after church is over, not for punishment, because I want to get you a Bible, okay? I want everyone to have a Bible. I want you to bring it with you. I also want to make sure you have a notepad with you so you can take notes, because 95% of what I say you will not remember. Not that my words are powerful, but that God's Word is powerful, and I want you to take from it as much as possible. If you do not have a notebook, uh, someone has generously given some notebooks. They're out in the foyer and on the table. Uh, if you want to leave now to go get one, I understand, and we love you. But I want you to take notes as we study this morning. From 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're going to be. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As we walk through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth... If this is your first time with us during this sermon series, I want to get you up to date on where we are. The church at Corinth had started as a result of the ministry of Paul as he shared the gospel among uh, that city. And Paul has a great affection for this church, but word reaches him that there is division in the church, that there is sin in the church, that, that the church is imperfect. Imagine that. And Paul doesn't wish for them to remain in that state, and so he writes them a letter, which we have here addressing some of those concerns, even some of the questions they had for him, as well as him sharing the gospel once again that they needed to hear. And so what we have this morning is a difficult picture of the church because it's not one that we wish anyone to be marked by. But I do want to share this with you this morning. The title of this sermon is Killing Sin. And before we get started in this section and we read it, I do want to read to you a passage that I think will help us with where we're at. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you, but it's, it's in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul shares with the church at Colossae that God had rescued them in Christ and hidden them with him. And then he says this in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And it's, I want to point out that phrase where he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That's talking about killing sin. It's another word called mortifying sin. But it's the idea that we don't just coddle sin, but we kill it. We, we call it what it is. We strike it dead because of what Christ has done for us. John Owen was a Puritan preacher in the 1600s, and he wrote this about that verse. He says, do you mortify do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. What I want to share with you this morning is in that vein. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And the Corinthians have set themselves up as honored kings rather than sin-killing believers. And this morning, I think the best word we can take is that which reminds us that we are to be daily about the business of killing sin. I want to read this to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. If you are physically able, I would ask you to stand with me this morning as we read God's word out of honor for God's word because we love it. And let us be thankful for the fact that we have a copy of God's word in our own language that we can read right now. And so may we read this in honor of God and may he bless the reading of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you 
and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning, that sexual, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. God, we need your help through these tough verses. And Lord, we need you to help us to see that you're speaking to us, not necessarily our neighbor. And God, I pray this morning that you would help us in the midst of these verses to see the beauty of Christ, to see his perfection, his holiness, and God, that we might be motivated by his death on our behalf to live lives that give you honor and glory and represent you well to this community. Lord, help us as a church to cling to your truth above all things. Lord, I do pray that you would help humble us. God, that we would not be prideful and arrogant, but God, we would realize that we are but sinners who have been saved by grace. And Lord, help us to love those who are in love with the world. God, help us to love them with the love of Jesus that we might share with them that there is greater joy found in Christ than anywhere else. And Lord, I pray that you'll be with us as a church to see that we should be about your kingdom, not our own. God, that we exist not so that Fairhaven can become a mighty power, but that your kingdom would rule and reign. And God, I pray for all the other churches in our community that we know share the gospel. I am grateful, God, that we are not the only ones. Lord, I pray in particular for my brother Matt Moore in Cedarview Baptist Church. God, I pray you'll be with him as he preaches this morning. Give him boldness for you. Be with my brother Wade Humphreys in Longview Point Baptist Church in Hernando. God, help him to speak your truth. God, I pray that you will save people in this room right now, today, by the power of your word. God, use your word. Put me aside, God. May I speak only as a vessel for your glory. I ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen. amen. You can be seated for just a moment. Can I brag for a second before we move on? We had a children's Sunday school class this morning so large we had to move it to a bigger room. Right? God gets glory. And all you children who came, you tell your parents or your grandparents, I need to go back next Sunday. You tell them that, all right? Because we love your children here at Fairhaven. We love your children. We want to share the gospel with them. We want them to love Christ. And so I thank you for those who dedicate themselves to doing that. I'm thankful for the people who are sitting in our nursery right now, giving up time in here so that they might love on your children. 
I'm thankful for that, and I'm thankful for this church. So I just wanted to brag on you real quick before we talk about this messed up church we're about to look at. Because while all those things are good, moving classrooms so that we can fit more people in them is good, in the end, Jesus is better than all those things. And in the end, it's about him, not about us. And just so you know, we're still imperfect at Fairhaven. If you walked in here thinking we got it all together, I'd hate to blow it for you. But you just walked, if, this, if you walked in here, you, you walked into a mess. Because we are all sinners, amen? amen? Every single person in this room's a sinner, amen? amen? Let's not walk away thinking we got, we got life figured out. We need Christ just as much as everyone else sitting in this room. So I pray that we've come for that reason. If you're a guest with us, welcome to a room filled with sinners who have been saved by grace. We pray the same for you. All right, verse 1, let's start out. I don't have any catchy titles besides my sermon title. I don't have any great points for you. We're just going to go plugging through these verse by verse. You ready? Get your pens ready. Get your notebooks ready. Here's what he says. Verse 1, Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans for a man has his father's wife. We looked last week at the fact that, that the church at Corinth was filled with groups of people who tended to be a little boastful and proud. Now, I know we don't have any of that in here. Nobody in here is prideful. But back then, they had people who were in groups thinking they had life figured out, thinking they were kings. And Paul had to bring them down to earth and say, no, you are, you are to be humble because Christ is the king, not you. And that we live these daily lives because Jesus is the one who rightfully reigns, not us. And God has not called us to a life of comfort, but a life of commitment to him. Now, he's reminded them of that before he jumps into this. Then he says that there is actually reported. I love the way he phrases that because it, it should stick out to you. What he's saying is, I cannot believe it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And he says, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the, the pagans. So Paul says he has received word, probably from Chloe's people that we saw in chapter 1 who reported to him. He's received word that there is wickedness in the church, and this wickedness is so shocking that even people who weren't Christians would look on it and go, that's wrong. Just so you know, when non-Christians look at what you do and go, that's wrong, you might want to look at it. And here, the pagans in the community, this is Corinth. This is like Vegas. If you go to Vegas and the people in Vegas who aren't believers look at what you're doing and go, I can't believe you're doing that, you might want to rethink what you're doing. It's probably going down the road. You got what I'm saying? When the Corinthians look at you and go, that's wrong, this was a city known for sexual morality. The verb to Corinthianize was a verb to be sexually immoral. And he says, even the pagans in Corinth are looking at you going, what? He says, it is actually reported that there is wickedness in the church so great that even the pagans would look at you and go, that's terrible. Ooh. He says, it's shocking that a gathering of Christians is found tolerating sin that even pagans would not tolerate. He says, here's the problem, a man has his father's wife. All right, for the children in the room, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this as pure and holy as I can. All right? So parents, you may need to have a talk with your children when you get home. I'm, I'll deal with my own. You deal with yours. But what this means is that a man is actually having an ongoing relationship immorally, 
sexually and morally with his father's wife. Now, I do not believe this means his mom. I don't believe that because I think Paul would have said that. What I, what I think might have happened here is, is a man's father's wife, either he got divorced or he died, and the father is now gone. And the son entered into a relationship with what used to be his father's wife. You got what I'm saying? And the pagans would look at that and go, no. Even the pagan Corinthians would look on that and say, that cannot be tolerated. In fact, even God's word forbids that. Leviticus 18 and 25, and also in Deuteronomy 22 and 27, this is an illicit relationship that should not be taking place in the world, let alone in the church, among the Christians. And while the Christians in Corinth are trying to stand out as lights in a dark world, they are actually exhibiting greater darkness than even the pagans would show. Just so you know, when you become a Christian, you are called to be different. And the reason you're called to be different is because you are different. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 tells us, Therefore, he who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed. The problem is the Christians in Corinth, in the church, they're not living different. They're living the same way. And as such, this gathering of Christians should not be tolerating ongoing unrepentant sinning in the church because just so you know that verb a man has his father's wife actually means goes on having his father's wife it means it's currently happening didn't happen in the past and now it's over it's currently still in place he is still having a sexually immoral relationship with his father's wife so i'm not talking about whether you've blown it in the past because every person in this room has done that i'm talking about ongoing unrepentant Sin. God said don't, and you do consistently and regularly. You understand what I'm getting at? There's a difference between oops, I blew it, and oops, I'm still blowing it regularly. This is an ongoing willful disobedience to God, and the church is tolerating it. And Paul says this cannot be so. Look at verse 2. He says, are you, uh, and you are arrogant, exclamation point. Notice that. So I, I, I saved you from yelling it, which is what I should have done. I should have exclaimed that. But he says, are, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? See, the problem is they are responding the opposite of what they should be responding. And the reason is because they are puffed up and prideful. He says, oh, you are arrogant. We've already seen that from chapter 4. He says, ought you rather to mourn instead of be arrogant? That's the proper response to what's happening in the churches. They should grieve. They should be sorrowful for the fact that this is existing among the Christians in the church. They should weep over that, not pound their chests and be arrogant. And see what I... Th they're, they're responding in a way that does not match the holiness of Jesus. And then Paul gives this very bold statement. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Uh-oh. Talk about some unpopular things here. He said that that person, this man, this offender should actually, this is the desired result. He should, he should have been put out, expelled from the body, from the church, from the assembling of the church together. That's the desired result that should have come if they were properly grieving over this hideous sin within the church. They should have been so sorrowful that they expelled him from the assembly. And just so you know, 
Paul shares that that is his attitude in verse 3. He says, for though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Here we see Paul's attitude towards the situation. And I want to point you to the difference between Paul's attitude and the church's. They are tolerating. They are cuddling with sin. And Paul is saying, kill it. Don't cuddle with it. Kill it. And he says, I'm with you in spirit. He said, I've already pronounced judgment. I've already said, here's what to do. Here's the proper response for the Christian who is willfully and regularly, habitually rebelling against God in sin. If he does not repent, Paul says, put him out. Yikes. Just so you know, this goes against all your, your common day church growth models of how to grow a big church. When you talk about expelling people, but there's a seriousness about sin that Paul has. You get what I'm saying? There's a seriousness about it, and it's not just so that we can act like we're all pious and go, look, we took care of it, but it's because we love Christ so much, and we, 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 we worship his holiness so great that the church cannot stand in the presence of willful disobedience against God that's unchecked. Can't do it. And here, Paul's attitude is so stark. He actually uses this courtroom imagery. So for all you Judge Judy fans, he uses the court imagery. He speaks of judgment as already pronounced on the offender as if Paul was there. And he says, you should expel him. Now, verses 4 and 5. I think in verses 4 and 5, we actually see a biblical uh, foundation to church membership. I hear people all the time saying, it's not in the Bible that you have to join a church. That's fine. You won't find a verse that says, thou shalt join a church. But I think verses 4 and 5 start to push us in that direction. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He says, when you're assembled together. What's assembled? The Christians. The Christians in Corinth are assembled together. They come together as one body, he says, with the power of our Lord Jesus. So there we see a picture of the church gathering together, especially there in Corinth. And I believe that speaking that somehow they assembled together in a formal fashion that they were one body. Somehow they committed themselves to one another, that we're going to be a church and we're going to gather together as Christians. You get what I'm saying? That looks like church. And it looks like they joined into some type of assembly together. That they didn't just say, well, I'll show up when I can. I'll be around when I got time. But they officially united with each other in some form. That they assembled together as a body, as a church. And then Paul says, they are to deliver this man to Satan. And this is action that honors Christ. And you say, how? How does it honor Jesus to take someone who's in sin and expel them from the assembly? Well... When the church gathers, the church gathers, according to verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus. That name we've been singing about all morning. When the church gathers, we're not gathering here under Jason's name, thank the Lord. And we're not gathering here under your name. It ain't about you. When we gather together as Christians, we are gathered together in the name of the Lord. That when we gather together as a church, we represent him when we're gathered. We communicate who Jesus is when we gather in his name. We proclaim what we think about Jesus when we gather in his name. When we come together as Christians, we are reflecting Jesus to the rest of the world 
of what we believe about him. Not only do we assemble in his name, but Paul says it is with the power of Jesus that they are to deliver this man to Satan. It's done under his authority, under the authority of Christ. Now, that phrase, deliver this man to Satan, is a rough one. I don't know about you. You probably haven't done a lot of devotional stuff over that. You probably haven't, you know, you probably haven't gotten there with your coffee in the morning and your waffles and you sit down with God's word and go, I think I'm going to study a passage. Oh, yeah, I think I'm going to talk about this delivering a man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That seems awfully harsh, but actually it's not. I mean, it is to the man, but it's not for that purpose. This, is, this phrase is used only one other place, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. And I believe it speaks of expelling the man from the community of believers and regarding him as an outsider. It is to look upon him as if he is no longer a brother. It's to put him outside the group. And just so you know, he says, Paul says that this is for the destruction of the flesh. What's he saying? You put him out of the assembly, you expel him from the assembly so that he would see the gravity of his sin and he might kill it instead of coddle it. That he might destroy the flesh, sin, worldliness, wickedness. The whole purpose of putting him out isn't for his damnation. The reason they are to put him out is for his discipline so that he might see the error. Listen, when you're separated from the assembly of Christians, you see the difference when that grace is no longer there in companionship, when the people you rely on and, and lean on are no longer there. It can show you just how far you've fallen, how far you've gone. And Paul says the whole reason to expel him is so that he would, he would see the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit, he says, may be saved. That's the purpose for putting him out. But here's what we do know. Condoning his sin will not accomplish that necessary discipline. Simply saying, it's okay, it's all right, will not cause him to kill sin. Listen, it ain't for my good that you condone my sin, but that you lead me to kill it. And it ain't for your good that I would condone your sin, but I would lead you to kill it. And just so you know, in this room is a whole bunch of sins that need killing. Do I need to remind anybody of that? I'll tell you what. How about I go get one of them notebooks from the hallway. I'll pass it around. And all of you write your sin down in it. Then we'll go, we'll go through it bit by bit. Uh, no, yeah, some of you are ready to just, okay, we're done. Church is over. Let's go, right? So I don't need to remind you or convince you that sin is real and that it's still real in the life of Christians. This is a brother in Christ who's caught in this. And Paul says what's good for him is not to embrace his sin or tolerate it. What's good for him is that you would discipline him so that he would see that he needs to be about killing sin, not loving it. And as a church, the best thing we can do for one another is say, brother, kill that sin. Sister, don't walk in it anymore. Kill it. And I want to remind you, it's because of the name of Jesus that we do that, and it's by his power. I don't have power in me at all to kill a single thing except um, all the pets that we have. I'll, I'm, I'm, I can't take care of pets. I'm not good at that. I can't take care of flowers. I can't take them in. in, in the, we had so many goldfish growing up. You know what I mean? Like I bought my kids goldfish uh, when they were little because they all wanted fish. We put them in little. They, they died quick, quickly. I don't 
I mean, I don't know what we did to them, but they were dead quick. I can't grow flowers. I can't do that. I will kill them. Do not, put a, do not put a plant in my office. It's as good as dead. I cannot take care of anything, right? But in the end, we are to be about killing sin. And that is one thing I can do in the power of Christ. He's given. Do no, you know what? When you become a Christian, when God has changed you and made you a new creation, sin does not hold power over you anymore. Do you know that? You can actually look at sin and say no. Whereas apart from Christ, we can't do that. Apart from Christ, we will always say yes to sin. But we have power, and that's exactly what Paul wants to see the church exercise. And then he says this in verse 6, and don't get scared. We're going to move really quick now. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So they're boasting. Not only did they turn a blind eye to this man's sin, they actually gloried or boasted in their tolerance of it. He says their boasting isn't good. It's not loving. It's not beautiful. It's not caring. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? They didn't understand how damaging and dangerous these actions were or their non-actions were. They thought it was just about one guy. And Paul says, no, it's damaging and dangerous to the whole body of Christ because if you tolerate that, it will spread. A little leaven, he says. That's the same wording that's used in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And it's a picture from Exodus 12. It's, it's Passover language. And the idea of leaven, I don't know this personally because I don't cook anything unless it's in a box with instructions. But what I understand is leaven is used in bread. Am I correct? And the reason you use leaven in bread, if I am correct, is so that it will rise. And from what I understand, leaven in a lump spreads to the whole thing. Which is why, and, and just so you know, leaven was used in the scriptures as a reference to sin. Which is why before the Passover, they were to remove all the leaven from the house. And they were to eat unleavened bread as part of it because it was a picture of sin. It was a picture of wickedness. Here he says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now the picture behind that, because I'm not a baker, I get it a little bit. It's like, it's like a germ that spreads until it consumes the entire thing. You understand what I'm getting at? It is, it is something that spreads to the point where everything is consumed. So Paul's saying this is not a little sin. It's not a little sin that you should just tolerate and coddle. He says because if you let this sin go, then it, what you know, it's going to spread to all of the, the body. It's going it's to spread throughout the church, and it's going to bring the whole church into this state of wickedness and rebellion. He says, you have to act, and you have to act now. He says, cleanse out the old leaven. That's a command to purge, to kill, to mortify sin within the church. He says that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Notice that he says they already are unleavened. He isn't saying cleanse out the old leaven that you may become a new lump because they are already so cleaning up your act, right, won't save you, but rather you're saved, now cleanse it out. There's a difference between those two. One says I got to clean up so God will accept me. The other one says God accepts me, so I'm going to clean up as a result of what he's already done. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, you don't clean up your life so God will go, okay, now I'll save you. God saves you by his power. You clean out the lump, Right? You purge all that's sin, all that's wickedness. You don't coddle it, you kill it because you love Jesus more than that thing. He says you are 
already unleavened. He says, you're not doing this so that you can become unleavened. You already are. This isn't clean up your act and be saved. It's be saved. And as a result, God cleans. Because need I remind you, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, as Christians, we are new creations. We aren't just dusted up old creations. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We have, as Christians, been radically changed. Can I get an amen from one Christian? I got one. Can I get an amen from two Christians? Come on, y'all. You're no longer the old dusted up. When you accept Christ, when you trust in him, you are a new creation. You're not just the cute old one. You are a new one. We're new. We're new. As Christians, we're new. And I like new. New is so much better than old. We are new creations. As Christians, we're new. We don't clean up so we can become new. God makes us new. And now as a result of that, we can kill sin. We can actually, as a church, kill it. And I'm telling you, it's great to kill sin because there's so much more joy in Christ than there is in sin. Man, this should be a sin-killing place. We should show up here all ready to slaughter sin when we show up. By the way, don't just do it here. I mean, you, you need to kill sin every day at home, in the car, at work. Be busy killing sin, or sin will be killing you, as John Owen said. But we are new. Christians in Corinth, they are new creations. For Christ, our Passover lamb, he says, has been sacrificed. We have been made new, not by sacrificing ourselves, but we've been made new because God sacrificed his son instead of us. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And Christ is for believers as Passover was for the Israelites. When the Israelites looked back on Passover, what were they celebrating? God's deliverance of them from slavery. Guess what we celebrate in Christ? Our deliverance from slavery to sin. Just so you know, Christ did that for you, and if you trust in him and you repent of your sin, you are a new creation, no longer marked by the old. And I'm telling you, I imagine Paul was really excited about that because his background was tragic. He had murdered. He had locked up Christians. I imagine Paul was really thankful for the fact that he was not just the old dusted up, but he was a new creation. And that's because of Christ. Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. And then verse 8, I promise you we're going to go real quick here. He says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Because of what Christ has done for us, we are, he says, to celebrate the festival. The Christian life is viewed as this perpetual, ongoing feast in honor of what Christ has done. And he says we celebrate not with the old leaven, malice and evil and sin, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's new life. That's power over sin. That's how we live perpetually every day. Not tolerating sin, but killing it for the glory of God. And then finally... Verses 9 through 13, 
In these concluding verses of chapter 5, Paul makes an important distinction in the middle of a misunderstanding. He says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or of the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So Paul re references a letter that he wrote to them. Previous, we don't have that letter. It is gone. We don't have that. Obviously, the Lord didn't, uh, at, didn't keep that for our, for our conclusion here in the, in the canon. But instead, he says that from that letter, a misunderstanding broke out because what the church in Corinth heard was do not associate with sexually immoral. And they said, well, then I guess we can't associate with our neighbors because have you seen them? Mm. Can't associate with our coworkers. Mm. But the problem is they were misunderstanding what Paul said. He didn't mean to stay away from all sexually immoral people. He said, otherwise, you'd have to be taken out of the world. Everybody got that? If, it was, if God's call in your life was to stay away from sinners, where are you going to go? Where, where, where are we going? I can't, I can't go home. I can't even go home. Because I'll be there. They were misunderstanding. Paul is saying, don't be around any sexually immoral people. He said, no, you, otherwise you'd have to leave the world. And so in the end, he didn't tell them to not have a concern to build relationships and, and getting involved with unbelievers because otherwise they'd have to leave. Paul's concern is the responsibility of Christians that they should have for one another. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So he says, it ain't about staying away from all sexually immoral people because then you'd have to leave the earth. He says, but you're to avoid and not to be in relationship with those who are a brother and stuck in sexual morality. Again, not to be cruel, but so that they might be busy killing sin. Paul's concern is for the responsibility that Christians should have for one another. And then he says this to close it off. He says, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And just prior to that, in verse 12, he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So Paul says, God will take action towards those outside the church family. That's his responsibility. He says, but we called as Christians to be responsible for one another. That's wholly different. Listen, I know this is a difficult text to show up to church, and if, if this is your first time in church in a while, please come back again. This isn't like, we don't, we don't normally talk about these things every Sunday. I mean, we do talk about sin and the glory of Christ, but we don't always deal with this type of specificity. You know what I'm talking about? So please come back to church. But here's what I want to take away from this, if I can. Number one, we as Christians should take sin seriously. You understand what I'm saying? Somebody say amen. amen. We got to. We got to take sin seriously. You have to take my sin seriously. I need to take yours seriously. And as Christians, we need to take each other's sin very seriously. Number two, the church should take seriously the responsibility given us through Christ's death to purge sin from the body. The church should take seriously the responsibility given us through Christ's death to purge sin from the body. Our church should be about that. Not because we're hateful, mean people. Not because we're holier than thou, thinking we got it all figured out, but because we love people so much. 
We don't want to see them falling for the fleeting pleasures of sin. We want to see them joyous in Christ. That's why. Because just so you know, my life is as jacked up as everyone's. And what I need is to be about killing sin the same as you. And together we do it for one another because we love each other enough to say that sin will not make you happy. It will not bring eternal joy. So we take that seriously as a church. Number three, Christ died that we might be made new and live our lives as a perpetual celebration of his cleansing sacrifice. Christ died that we might be made new and live our lives as a perpetual celebration of his cleansing sacrifice. And when you think about what Jesus died for, when you think about what Jesus endured to save us from our sin and what he's brought to us through his death, is there a greater celebration than knowing that I used to be under the wrath of a holy God, but now I've been forgiven and now I stand as righteous before God? Is there anything better than that? Number four, as Christians, we need to be busy killing sin. As Christians, we need to be busy killing sin. And just so you know, you can't do that apart from the power of Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you're trusting in your own efforts to save you, you can't do this because you don't have the power in yourself to kill sin. The Bible says that apart from Christ, we are in bondage, slavery to sin. But Christ purchased us out of it. He said he came that he might give his life as a ransom for many. So I need you to know that if you're here this morning and you're trusting in your own goodness, you can never kill sin on your own. Instead, I would urge you to trust in Christ and his death. Because his death was powerful to pay for all sin. Not some, all sin. And then finally, God deserves all glory for providing his son as the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sin. God deserves glory for providing his son as the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sin. And because Christ has defeated sin in us, now we are to be about the daily killing of sin. And God puts you and me together so that together we might daily be slaying sin and loving Christ more. And I'm telling you, there's no better reason to come together as a church on a Sunday morning than to be busy killing sin. But it means we might have to be honest with one another. It means you might actually have to be real with one another and say, you know what? I've got sin, and I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray with me. I need you to hold me accountable. Those are all the things that you and I need in order to effectively kill sin. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it apart from the church. That's why Paul calls for them to expel the brother so that he would see it and that he might be brought back in under discipline. But I'm telling you, the best thing I can do for you and the best thing you can do for me is to help me be busy about killing sin. Why? So Christ would be seen as the holy, perfect Son of God. 
I know that's tough to bite off on a Sunday morning. I know you'd probably rather just go home and watch some football and forget about all this, but I'm telling you, there's no better admonition for us this morning, no better warning for us as Christians than let's be busy killing sin. Let's be busy about it because Christ deserves nothing less. Would you pray with me? Lord, I ask you to help, help us as Christians through this tough text, God. This, this is stuff that we don't love necessarily talking about 